You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. Do you have a digital mindset? Check out Season 3 of This is Digital. Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including driving profitable growth in enterprise software and how the new sports fan experience can drive revenue. Featuring guests like Chris D'Agostino of Databricks and Scott Crable of Tama Bravo. Check out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. I'm Bethany McLean. This is Making a Killing. In this show, I cut through the hype and hand-wringing to reframe the stories you thought you understood and uncover the ones you didn't know were important. It isn't a secret that pension funds, which many of us rely on to pay for our retirements, are in dire straits. Ready for a scary number? The combined funding deficit of public pension plans across all 50 states was an alarming $1.28 trillion in 2017. Thank goodness we have a savior. It's the private equity business. The belief, simplified, is that private equity will invest in private companies or buy public companies and take them private. Those no doubt brilliant investments will play out perfectly and help us achieve the returns we need and our health and retirement benefits will be secured. The chief investment officer of the California Public Employees Retirement System, which is the biggest pension fund in the United States, recently advocated putting more money in private equity. His quote, we need more of it and we need it now. He was a risk officer at Lehman Brothers. But anyway, he's far from alone. What insiders call dry powder, the amount of uncommitted capital that private equity firms can invest, now exceeds $2 trillion. But what if it's not true? What if private equity isn't going to make our retirement plans fat and happy? This is a question with huge ramifications for pension funds, for those who depend on them, and for our markets. After all, some private equity deals have gone wrong in very public ways. Look at Toys R Us, which buyout firms Bain and KKR, along with Vornado Realty Trust, acquired for $6.6 billion in 2005. When Toys R Us filed for bankruptcy in 2017, the toy company said it had $5.3 billion in debt and was paying $400 million a year in debt service payments. Over 30,000 employees were left without jobs. 
In late June, San Jose Inside newspaper published a piece noting that San Jose's two pension funds had upped the amount they were putting in so-called alternative investments from less than 10% to almost 50% over the decade spanning from 2006 to 2016. Over that same period, those two plans posted returns that were consistently lower than 99% of their peers. So there are some skeptics. Chief among them is Daniel Rasmussen, himself an investor, although that's probably too simplistic an introduction. Another investor has likened Rasmussen to the fighter pilot Maverick in the movie Top Gun, because in a very controversial piece published in American Affairs last summer, Rasmussen dismantles what he says are the three assumptions that underlie the boom in private equity. One, that private equity firms make money by improving the companies they buy. Two, that private equity is less volatile and less risky than public markets. And three, that private equity will significantly outperform every other investment. Rasmussen writes, there is near complete consensus on these three points among academics, investors, and private equity firms. And he believes that the consensus is dead wrong. I have to admit, whenever I hear the phrase near complete consensus, I get nervous too. So I'm thrilled to have Daniel here with me to discuss the risks and realities of private equity. After working at Bain, yes, a private equity firm, and Bridgewater, a hedge fund, Dan founded his own firm called Verdad Advisors. Dan is also the New York Times bestselling author of American Uprising, the untold story of America's largest slave revolt. So, Dan, what do you think when you hear the phrase near complete consensus? The most dangerous thing in financial markets is consensus because consensus is what drives bubbles. And I think what's really frightening about private equity today is that over, I think, a recent frequent survey said over 94% of institutional investors believe that private equity will outperform the public equity markets by greater than 2% per year. And yet you you cite in the piece you wrote this Cambridge Associates study that showed that private equity returns have actually lagged the Russell 2000 index by 1% and the S&P 500 by 1.5% a year over the past five years. Why is there this gap between perception and reality? Largely because the returns prior to 2006 were so good. So before private equity became the hottest asset class, it was a relatively niche alternative. It was largely pursued by some of the smartest people in the business, pioneered by Yale's endowment and others, and it worked really well for about 20 years. And in the late, mid to late 2000s, people started to realize how well Yale and others had been doing in the asset class, and they started to pile in. So all the performance stats that people look at include this wonderful pre-2006 period. Even though the post-2006 period has been mediocre, it hasn't yet been disastrous. And so people combine the mediocre returns, the great returns, and they say, ah, where else are we going to look for something that has a good chance of beating public equities? So in a sense, are they victims of their own success? Of course. And this is a perpetual story in markets. Everything begins as a good idea, 
And then Wall Street packages it up and sells it. And if it keeps working, it gets to be a bigger sales pitch. And the more money that flows in, the more efficient the market gets. And if more money keeps pouring in and the opportunity set is small, that's where you get really bad market conditions. So we've talked a lot on my show about Wall Street being such a short-term machine. And I'm always interested in the places that seem to get exemptions. And so why is it that people are willing to give private equity so much credit for past returns that are so long long in the past. One of the great allures of private equity, one of its big attractions, is the way that the returns are accounted for. So because private equity is private, the returns are calculated by accountants that are employed by the private equity firms who issue statements on a quarterly basis saying what each company in that private equity fund is worth. And those are highly subjective marks. And they tend to track the financial metrics of those businesses much more than they track the market. So in Q4, for example, markets were down 15, 20%, uh, Q4 of 18. Private equity marked down their portfolios in aggregate somewhere between 0 and 5%, right? Wow. So either of these private equity guys are super geniuses who generated 15% of alpha in a three-month period, or the way they're marking their assets isn't truly to market. And I think the reality is that they're not marking them to market. They're marking them to what they think they're worth. And that might be a very thoughtful, elegant, intellectually correct way of valuing them. But it's not, markets are not efficient in that way. They're much more volatile than they should be. And so because these returns are artificially smoothed, people have grown lulled into complacency. And there's always the case that someone can say, well, yes, I know it hasn't worked over the past three years, but it's early in the fund's tenure. This is a 10-year fund. It'll be marked up over time. It always has been. And these are the dynamics that allow people to get fooled and lulled into complacency and not get any feedback about whether their investments are working or not. I think you used a line in your piece that I loved that the CIO of the Public Employment Employee Retirement System of Idaho called this the phony happiness of private equity. Yes. It always makes me think of my favorite line from The Sun Also Rises. Isn't it pretty to think so? <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Much prettier to think so than to admit that these returns may actually not be all they're cracked up to be. You had a great example in the piece you wrote of this too, not just the fourth quarter of 2008, but what happened when energy prices crashed in 2014 and 2015. Do you want Want to walk us through that? Yeah. So, you know, oil prices dropped more than 50%, maybe maybe even 70% or something like that. Yep. And private equity, energy private equity had been the it, you know, investment class. Which it is again now. Which it, it has is been. again now <laughs> for reasons that you've documented very well, uh, don't make sense to me. But these private equity firms had bought a lot of shale drilling firms. Um, they levered them up much more than other investments in the industry. Public energy stocks were generally down about 50%. And I think at the time I wrote this piece in the middle of 2016, the private equity assets were not marked down at all. So they were marked at one, right? So they'd, even the 2014 and 15 vintages were marked at one. So they deployed a bunch of money and highly levered, very small shale drillers. And even though the public equivalent was down 50, oil prices were down 60 or 70, right? They were marking them at one. There was one energy PE executive who was asked, you know, why is it that your portfolio is marked at one? Uh, he said, well, we're looking through the cycle when we make our valuations. Once again, isn't it pretty to think so, right? <laughs> <laughs> I saw a quote, actually, that some 82% of people in private equity use internal valuations rather than any kind of external benchmark. Why do investors, let, are investors just so desperate to believe that it's that in this lack of volatility that they allow private equity firms to get away with it? Yeah, I mean, I think we're living in an age where everyone thinks back to the pain of 08. I mean, I think it's very much on people's minds. 
private equity, I think the Russell 2000 small cap index was down about 60% peak to trough in 08. A private equity was marked down about 30%. And so if you're, you know, sitting there on the investment committee of one of these pension funds or college endowments, you look back at that experience and you love private equity because that's what allowed you to sleep at night during that period or to tell your committee that you were beating the market or you weren't down as much as the S&P, right? You know, our endowment, you know, did fine through the crisis. And of course, it was a myth, but it's a myth that everybody is happy to believe in. I mean, markets are too volatile, right? I mean, nobody likes it when their portfolio is down 15% in three months. Uh, And this offers a pleasant alternative. Why do you think it continues with all of the warning signs that are building up to be so easy to sell private equity firms to institutional investors? It serves a pleasant fiction that a lot of us would like to believe in. It's like your quote from A Sun Also Rises. I think we'd like to believe that very smart, well-educated Harvard Business School graduates can run companies better than other people. And that if we meet them and we really vet them and then they go and buy these companies, and they don't just buy a piece of them, right? Uh, that they buy the whole company and they really sit on the board and they work really hard at it and they can improve the companies. David Swenson, who's the Yale Endowment Manager, said this is a superior form of capitalism. Yes. Right? It's just That's better. It's quote. managed. It's managed by just the type of people you think should be able to manage it very well. Okay. So we've addressed your first myth that these funds are not less volatile. It's just the accounting that actually helps them look less volatile. The accounting we're all actually willing to buy into. And now there's this myth, one of your other myths, is that they actually can improve companies. And you've actually done a lot of work showing that that's not true. It's not just uh, a belief of yours. And what's the most compelling thing you found that made you say this just isn't true? What I want to address this question, it's hard because private equity companies are private. So what I looked at is every private equity deal where the company had issued public debt. Okay, so when you issue public debt, you have to report your financials at the time of issuing the debt, right, which is when the transaction occurs. So you have the pre-transaction financials. And then, of course, you have to report to the market what your returns are afterwards because the debt is public. So I found about, I think, 300 or so deals over the past decade, which had issued public debt. So it's a pretty broad cross-section. And then what I wanted to look at is pre-acquisition, what the financials were, and then post-acquisition and see, you know, if, 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 of course, operational change is happening. And if it's happening at a magnitude, which is driving this very superior performance to the public equity market, I figured it should be obvious. Right. I mean, I shouldn't have to look too hard. So first I looked at trends in revenue growth. Yep. And broadly what I found is that revenue growth slowed post-acquisition. That's actually stunning. (laughs) But it's not stunning if you think about it in a different way, which is that private equity firms want to buy good companies. So, of course, they're going to select for companies that have been performing well, which are going to be firms with higher revenue growth than average. But if the world reverts to the mean and there's no skill then you'd expect to see above average growth in the past and mean growth afterwards, which is what you see. And then you look at margins. You said, okay, well, maybe maybe the private equity guys aren't driving revenue. Maybe they're brilliant cost cutters. Maybe they're efficiency geniuses. Is there such a thing as being a brilliant cost cutter? Maybe. Uh, okay, maybe okay, an fine. aggressive cost cutter. Okay. <laughs> we can clip <laughs> A savage cost cutter, a predatory <laughs> cost cutter. Yeah, I get it. But I saw basically no change in margins pre and post acquisition. So it wasn't like revenue growth was expanding. It wasn't like margins were expanding. So what did change? Well, very systematically, in every deal observed, there was a massive increase in debt. And with a massive increase in debt, a massive increase in interest payments. And because of the massive increase in interest payments, generally a contraction in investment spending. So if you think about what is the operational playbook from a data perspective, the operational playbook is to add debt to companies. 
That's it. That's the leverage buyout. It's private equity. So it's just a story of debt. It's just a story of debt. Does this make private equity sort of a parable for our times in the sense that this is the era of debt? Yeah. And I think that post-08, a a set of interesting things happened, right? I mean, one is that interest rates obviously dropped a lot. Two is that the Fed really intervened to abrogate the default cycles. There There were fewer defaults in 08 than there were, for example, in 03. So I think a lot of people got lulled into complacencies. They said, okay, we can take risks with debt because interest rates were low and the Fed's going to bail us out. So why not go down the quality scale, take a little bit more credit risk? Surely it, it couldn't go wrong. And that's largely what we've seen in private equity. So, you know, the debt levels have just risen and risen and risen and risen. Um, and because of regulation, um, the banks are no longer the ones, uh, public banks are no longer the ones providing the debt financing. Now it's in the private lending market, the business development corporations, the mid-market lenders, the CLOs, the CLS, this whole web this. of alternative lenders that are the ones providing this debt. And these are firms with very little track record. They're new firms. They don't have a lot of experience. They haven't gone through cycles. They're very aggressive. And they're willing to lend to smaller companies more money than banks ever would have lent. And they're willing to do it, uh, and this is sort of a very common thing that goes on in the industry, on pro forma financials. So the Fed, for example, put a rule in saying banks shouldn't lend to companies more than six times EBITDA. So what happened in the wake of the crisis is that a lot of these private lenders and mid-market lenders said, okay, of course, we're not going to lend more than six times EBITDA. But you, the private equity firm, tell us what EBITDA is, right? Because EBITDA is a, a made-up number. It's not a. It's not net income. It's not cash from operations. It's, it's whatever, a made-up number. Almost whatever you want it so to you be. Not it, quite. But exactly. So it's called pro forma EBITDA. Earnings or, before all the bad stuff. Right. Earnings before all the bad stuff. And uh, Moody's, just done a study on this, found that pro forma EBITDA was generally about 30% higher than gap EBITDA. Uh, never lower. <laughs> So I want to come back to this because this seems to hint to me at kind of round two of the shadow banking system yes. that played such a dangerous role in the financial crisis of 2008. But you you, you said something when you were mentioning pr- the lack of operational improvement at private equity firms that I found fascinating, which you said that there it's actually less investment, that they cut back on investment. And I find that really interesting because part of the marketing of private equity is that it's an escape from the short-termism of the market, that by allowing companies to be in private hands and to not have to meet quarterly earnings expectations, you can invest more and you can allow companies to take the big bets on businesses that we all want want to see them make. Your data would seem to suggest that's not true. Look, debt decreases your flexibility, right? If you owe lenders a huge amount of money, right, you, you don't have the flexibility to take some big, large-scale bet. And these firms are not taking out debt to fund the building of a new factory. They're taking out debt to fund the acquisition of themselves. So I think that just simple logic would suggest that the firms that are going to invest a lot are not the most levered firms. How do you think about the returns garnered from the big dividend payments that have become such a feature of private equity? Because I might be wrong, but that strikes me as new. So back in the battle days of financial engineering, right, private equity firms didn't routinely do that. They didn't add on debt and pay themselves a big dividend and get and get their money out the way ha- that happens in so many transactions today. Am I right about that? And is that is that a relatively new feature that is, yes, contributing to what returns there are, but also potentially quite problematic, both for future returns and for the state of these companies? Yeah, so this this is going to come back to the lessons learned from 08. And one of the lessons learned from 08 by the private equity funds was that they bought a lot of things in 06, 07, and then they couldn't get any money out of them until 2010 or 2011, right? So they were 
They had this long period where they'd put cash in and they didn't get cash out. And that hurts their, the, the key performance metric of private equity is called the internal rate of return. Right, and, and internal, it's time-based. And it's time-based. So you have to have sh- a short window between when you put capital to work and when you, de- when you return it. And so all the IRRs on the 06 and 07 vintage funds were really low. And so a lot of firms convinced, uh, convened study groups to say, okay, well, what are we going to do to make sure our IRR numbers are attractive? And one of the things that they came away with is that you need to return capital early on in the investment. So you need to shorten the time between when you deploy capital and when you give it back. So there are two ways to do that. One is you take out a subscription line of credit. So you buy a company, say you close in March, you borrow all the money you need for the closing, and then you wait until December to call the capital from your investors. So you've shortened the investment period by about nine months, maybe. So that's a subscription line of credit. With, that you do on the front end. With yet more debt. With more debt, right? But it's, it's short-term debt, so Got it's pretty it. yep. low rate, but yep. it really helps the IRR. Uh, and then the second thing is after about a year, if the operational metrics are good, and usually if there's anything you can generally forecast better, it's very short-term results after, right after you buy something. So you buy it, maybe you make the quick fixes, EBITDA's up a little bit, you go back to the banks, you say, look, EBITDA's up 5% or 10%, we can take out 10% more debt. And we're going to do that. We're going to refi it. And we're going to pay ourselves a dividend. And then they get cash back really fast. So now their IRR is looking great. And this has been, it can't be understated how important that those dividend payments are to improving IRRs. And that's really been one of the big drivers behind this. But that's actually frightening because it would suggest that the returns as meager as they have been are also being juiced by tactics that may not be, that are not sustainable. That's right. And hold periods, actually, this is interesting. So the Andre Schleifer, who's the most cited financial economist, I think, ever. And he says there are three ingredients to a financial crisis. It's consensus, leverage, and illiquidity. And those, those are the dangerous trio. Um, and obviously, you know, we have consensus here. We have increasing leverage. And what's really scary is the illiquidity aspect of this. So one of the ways that private equity firms, you can think about measuring private equity, is how long is the average hold period? So they buy a company and then they sell it. And I think in 05 and 06, was, the average hold period is about three or four years, right? So they buy it, sell it in three or four years. Now it's Use about, their genius to fix it in the use, Right, they could do it that quickly. And now it's six or seven years, okay? So these investments have gotten a lot more liquid. So that's another reason. They're taking the dividends out, right? And they're actually holding them longer. So why are they holding them longer? I would argue they're holding them longer because they can't sell them. <laughs> they can't sell them at a higher hence price than they bought them for. Right, hence the illiquidity, right? Another interpretation, which they would say, is we're holding them longer because it just we're having such a wonderful operational impact <laughs> that we realize that just with another two years under our benevolent management, we could really turn the corner operationally. So you can choose which interpretation. I think I'm going to go for your explanation, <laughs> but, but, but I'm a cynic. What can I say? One of the things I find fascinating about you is that you're not criticizing from the outside. How did working at Bain help shape your views? And did you know when you went into Bain that you might become a skeptic about private equity? Or did you go into it thinking, this is the greatest thing ever? I'm going to be an operational genius who's going to help transform corporate America. Yeah, I did think of myself as a genius who's going to transform corporate America, as I think <laughs> many, <we> <laughs> many 21-year-olds do. And I think that initially what attracted me to private equity was, I think, the same thing that attracts a lot of investors to it. I thought, okay, here's a chance to not only have the intellectual side of you know making investment decisions, figuring out what a good company is or what a good industry is, 
But there's also this management, you know, you actually own the company, so you can make a difference and you can improve it. And wouldn't it be great if you could make money by doing both at the same time? And gee, look at the returns. And gee, everyone smart thinks this is a good idea, right? Go talk to any college endowment. What are they doing? They think it's the best thing ever. And I was very persuaded by that. And I think that when I started doing more and more work, what I uncovered was not that anyone's intentions were bad. I think generally these are very smart, very well-intentioned, good people but that the prices for assets in the private market were going up and up and up. And because the private equity models to lever everything at 65%, if you go from paying seven times cash flow to 10 times cash flow, that means you're going from putting four times cash flow of debt to six times cash flow of debt. Well, and then you go to 12 times, 14 times, you know, the higher you go, the more debt you're putting on it. And what I started to realize, we looked at a huge data set of historic private equity deals was that those expensive deals, because of the large amounts of debt, had unusually high default rates and were unusually bad investments, that most of the money was made buying the cheaper investments, right, where you're putting a reasonable amount of debt on, which seems logical to me. And this is also why people criticize financial engineering, because back in the 80s and 90s, financial engineering meant buying things really cheap and funding the purchase with debt, which I actually think is a great way to make money. Right. right. You buy cheap things that, with it debt. Makes, makes, makes perfect sense. sense. Right. right. But buy buying really expensive, expensive things, things with, with debt. debt. Right. Like whether that's a yacht or a company or a diamond, you know, <laughs> you know, it's not going to work out so well. Um, and that's what was very observable in the data. And when I started to see that data, I said, well, this doesn't really make sense to me. And that was in 2011, 2012. That and that I was at that the data. moment of your conversion from and, believer to skeptic. Well, and then since then, purchase prices have gone up another 20%. So, you know, I was skeptic uh, probably too early, right? But but things have only gotten crazier and debt levels have only gotten crazier. Why is it that given that data doesn't usually lie, well, I guess it depends on how you interpret it, but the data seems so straightforward and so obvious and the logic seems so obvious buy something cheap, it's a lot easier to make money than if you buy something that's really expensive. Why won't the industry see it? I actually love this statement that Bain made about about your criticism of the industry. Mr. Rasmussen was a junior member of our team during his employment without full insight into our investment process or operational value add. <laughs> yes, I, I, I hope to meet someone with full insight someday, but uh, I haven't Or with operational yet. value add, <laughs> speaking <laughs> of which, right? Value add. I, I have cynicism value add, perhaps. Um, <laughs> I think that's better. I think that's a better. Thing. <laughs> but I think that there are a few things that have gone on, right? One is this lack of defaults. So there has been an unusually low rate of defaults over the past decade, right? So bad lending behavior has not been punished, okay? Buying really junky private credit assets has done okay. It's done okay. It hasn't defaulted. And because so much more of it is in private hands, the private people don't have as much of an incentive to push stuff into bankruptcy. It's not as visible when credit stats are deteriorating. There's this extend and pretend philosophy. So because of that, the bad things in private equity portfolios have not gone belly up. Now, there have been a few public exceptions, right, which we can talk about. A few of the big public exceptions, but a lot of them have become sort of what I would call zombies, right? These are the firms that are dragging the hold periods longer and longer, right? So they don't default, they don't go bankrupt, they just stay in the portfolio, right? I even heard one large private equity manager come out and say, the thing I'm most proud of about my firm is that we've never lost money on an investment, right? Amazing. And I said, well, what percent of the companies that you've ever bought do you currently own? 
And he said about 65%. As well, you've never acknowledged that you've lost money on an investment, right? Right. Um, but private markets allow you to do this, right? So you can hold on longer than the equivalent public asset. You don't have to pay the piper. And in a time of low defaults, you really don't have to pay the piper. And then if you look at what's happened in the public markets, there's been a huge premium for growth, right? So anything with high revenue growth, high sales growth has done really well and has been valued at really insanely high prices. So you've had a corner of, of the portfolio, which is the very expensive but very high growth things that actually have been great investments, right? You've been able to buy them at a really high price, flip them a year like later. Like for a period of time, yeah. right? And, and so you've got this contradictory lesson, right? On the one hand, you're saying, look, all the stuff I paid crazy prices for, I sold two years later for an even crazier price and look how much money I made. And then, yeah, I paid some high prices for some other stuff, but, you know, it's still marked at one. And, gee, you know, our operational guys tell me that next year it's going to turn the corner and put up that up for market. Who knows what it's going to be worth? So it's a bit of a version of Chuck Prince, the former CEO of Citigroup, who said famously right before the financial crisis broke wide open, as long as the music's playing, you have to keep dancing. Yes. What's scary is to see these metrics, whether that's fundraising metrics, Mm -hmm. so more money being raised, more dry powder, which leads to higher purchase prices, which means to higher debt levels, which means to lower credit quality of either debt that's issued, which leads to longer hold periods, right? Every single one of these metrics is deteriorating. There's not one that's not getting worse. But it's all driven by fundraising. So so, so despite this, right, the fundraising is going in exactly the wrong direction. And it's actually causing a lot of this bad behavior. Because I think people often talk about, they say, well, look, there are 500 companies in the S&P 500, but there are 30,000 or 100,000 small companies in the U.S. that are ripe for private equity. So it's a much better market. But what they don't realize is that it's a power law distribution, just like income, right? Like Amazon is worth 10,000 small companies, right? So the actual market is much, much bigger for these big liquid companies and the small companies. And yet the amount of capital that's now chasing these tiny little companies is really uh, overwhelming that market. And I think you've quoted, or at least you've heard some private equity officials themselves expressing concerns about this, worries <laughs> about the sheer amount of money that needs to be invested, but yet they, they don't stop. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is funny. I, I, I had at one point, I, sh- I should find it, a, a series of quotes from KKR, Apollo, Carlyle, Blackstone, the heads of all these firms saying this is the hardest time it's ever been to invest. Our number one problem is high purchase prices. What's going on in the debt markets is insane. I mean, they're very open about it. They see it. And yet they're raising bigger and bigger funds. And is some component of that not just their own belief in their own brilliance, but also the fact that they're paid a management fee upon those assets. So there's an incentive for asset gathering as opposed to, I mean, at what point, even with a giant firm, does the incentive for asset gathering become become more compelling than the incentive to to make good investments? I don't even think it's it's them driving it. I mean, they're the beneficiaries of a massive wave. They couldn't stop raising money if they tried. I mean, it, I talked to so many pension fund managers and endowment managers, and I, I say the same things I said to you. I said, why are you doing this? You know, why don't you just press pause for a little bit? And one of the things I say was, well, gee, if we don't commit to fund six, we're never going to be let into fund seven. Uh, right. So, so there's it's, this. It's not only fear of missing out, it's yeah. fear of being locked out because. Right. Because right, right. you didn't stick with them for every single fund. And so. And then they say, well, uh, and markets have been going up. So if we want to maintain a steady allocation to private equity, and this public markets went up 20%, we need to increase our allocation to private equity by 20% versus what we committed to the last fund, right? So they're going to their managers and they're saying, we need, I know you took $100 million last time, but can you take $200 million this cycle? 
And which private equity guy is going to say, well, no, we, you know, it's really not a good time in the cycle, right? They're going to say, oh, right, yeah, you want me to manage $4 billion instead of $2 billion, so you're going to double my salary? You're well, almost like, making, who's going to say no? You're almost making me feel bad for these poor private equity guys with all of these billions of dollars being thrown at them. I mean, they're just helpless in the face of it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who could resist? One of the criticisms I've heard of your work or your theory comes down to this, which is that private equity may be dangerous, but public markets are way more dangerous. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think public markets are more volatile, right? Mm-hmm. So they feel more dangerous. Right. Or, um, they, or they look, the volatility is more obvious or more real, yes. right? And that also enables bad behavior, right? It's very easy to sell at the bottom and buy at the top, and right? Whereas private equity, at least you're locking up your capital into something for a long period of time and you literally can't sell it. So maybe that's a, a good thing. But I think when I think about risk, I think about two primary forms of risk. One is valuation risk. So are you just paying too much given what an asset has been worth historically or relative to other assets? And then I think second is credit risk. So is what you're buying going to go bankrupt, right? So very two very simple ways of thinking about it. So for public markets, right, you could say, is there valuation risk? Yes. In the U.S., yes. Stocks are priced expensively relative to long history. But probably um, not so much bankruptcy risk. But not bankruptcy risk. There's not a lot of debt, right? right. Is Apple or Amazon or Facebook going to go bankrupt? No. Yep. Right? They don't have a lot of debt. They're not going to go bankrupt. What's different with private companies, right? Private companies are a lot smaller. So the average private company is actually about one-tenth the size in terms of market cap as the average Russell 2000 small cap company. So these are tiny, tiny little companies. And they're tiny little companies that have probably about three to six times as much debt on them as the average public company, right? which is 10 statistic. times bigger. Right. right? So wow. you're looking at these tiny, tiny companies that are much, much more levered, and they're trading at prices that are 20% higher than 07. I don't know. Both those things line up for me. And I say, look, is it historically risky as measured by historical volatility? No. Is it, is it risky as measured by the performance historically? No. Both those things suggest it's the best thing since sliced bread, and you should put 100% of your money in it because it's perfectly, it's less volatile than bonds and has higher returns than equities. But any prospective analysis that looks at, okay, but what are they actually buying? Right. That's what's scary. Right. And it's so interesting because going back to your point about statistics, even if statistics often do tell the right story, you have to be very careful about what statistics you choose to look at because the narrative you want to hear can influence the the statistics you choose to see, right? How dangerous is this? As I listen to that, I think, okay, well, those debt figures are really, really frightening. At the same time, if these are really, really small companies, how much damage does this do if you're right and the bankruptcy risk is big? How much damage does this do to the financial system? The interesting thing about it, and part of this was created by the Fed saying, hey, this shouldn't be done at banks, right? This should be done by these private lenders, and BDCs. But did, and wait, did the Fed actually say that, or did they just say this shouldn't be done at banks without meaning, yes, right, without, right, right, without actually right, the intention yeah, of right, them right, saying, right, well, right. then somebody else we right, can't right, control right, and right, can't see is Right, 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 right. We'll let college endowments do it instead. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, and, and so I think the, the impact on the economy, right? So I think on the one hand, I'd say, look, it's small. Right. It, it really is a small, it's a drop in the bucket. But Ben Bernanke wrote his PhD thesis on the small shocks, big crises puzzle, right? So small shocks cause big crises with some level of regularity. To some extent, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so I would say, look, is it a tiny thing relative to the size of the economy? Yes. Could it have an outsized impact? If it impacts how market participants act? Yes. Now, where will the pain be felt the most? I would say, I don't know if it'll affect the economy. I don't know if it'll affect the broader market, right? I do know it'll affect people that own it. 
Okay. And who owns it? Pension funds. Pension funds and college endowments, some of whom are putting 30, 40 at the upper end percent of their money into private markets, private equity, private debt, venture capital, right? I mean, because of this institutional consensus, right? And I think those are the people that are going to get whacked by this. The people who can least afford it, at least in the case of pension funds. That's right. Right. Do you think anybody understands, given that the financing side of this, the debt provision side of this has become so opaque, do you think there's anybody who understands what goes on there? Is it possible to figure that out? I think there certainly are. The problem is there's no way to short it, right? It's all private. Yep. How do you short science private? You can't. So so there's no, you know, there's no Jim Chanos or something. We don't have a big short yet. Right, and, right. you just can't, you can't really short it. All you can do is say, gee, you know, I think you're a little crazy to be putting money there. And then the person comes back to you and says, well, public markets were down 20 last year and our private equity portfolio is down five. So you're the crazy one. Right, right. <laughs> is there any irony in the fact that the very private equity firms that talk up the benefits of private investing Blackstone, KKR, Apollo are themselves publicly traded. It is remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> You'd think they could go private and then improve themselves. Maybe that's what we'll I'll get. recommend that. Maybe to that's them. what we'll get to actually is when the private equity firms start taking each other private in exactly. order to operationally improve themselves, and then all the workers there, all the brilliant Harvard MBAs, can figure out what it feels like to be a line item. Right, and I'll reveal to them that their models aren't very accurate, so they probably could use about fifty percent fewer analysts. Exactly. Now that would be a perfect fictional ending about all this. So if you had to predict this, does this end in a blood? Bath or just in disappointment and slow, sad disappointment for the pension funds, as we've discussed, who need these returns the most? I think it really depends on whether we have a default cycle or not. So if we have a real default cycle, like we had in 03, um, then this thing blows up, right? Because all these things are not credit worthy. I mean, and so if there's any change in credit standards from extremely loose to somewhat reasonable, a huge percentage of this stuff, you know, I'd say Upwards of 30% of private equity deals, in my, my, my guess, would be going to default. This stuff is really bad paper. Wow, However, stunning number. I think zombification is a real alternative, right? Which is that we just extend and pretend, right? So it just fizzles. And all of a sudden, you've got a 15-year-old private equity fund that still has three investments that are still marked at one that just hasn't sold. And you're disappointed, but the IRR still looks good because some of the dividend recaps early on, right? I mean, I think it's it's hard. That's that's a a really good and frightening (laughs) phrase. (laughs) Just tell us quickly what you're trying to do with Verdad. My premise is that if you look at the early years of private equity, the returns really were wonderful during the financial engineering years. And there was two, the two key ingredients to that were buying cheap companies, and they were using debt to fund the purchases they got when the investments went well, they went well, really well, because they were levered. And my logic is why not just copy that strategy, but do it in public markets. So go and find small cap companies all over the world that are trading at prices that look like 1980s or 1990s private equity, and that have similar capital structures, they're nicely levered. And so you get that extra juice in the returns. And so my idea is let's profit from what private equity used to do, which is sort of ironic, given that I'm such a critic of the industry. I'm not a critic of what they used to do. I thought that was brilliant. And I think that's what David Swenson fell in love with. And I think a lot of other people did. It's what they're doing now, which I think actually bears very little resemblance to what they were doing 20 years ago. Funny how things can mutate under our noses without us realizing that they've mutated because we're still clinging to a version of the past that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, right? And financial markets, I think, are the place where that happens most often because we always invest in the thing that's done well historically. And by nature of people agreeing that it's a good idea, it becomes a bad idea. 
We are pack creatures and emotional creatures at the end of the day, right? (laughs) Thank you so much for being here with me. This was really fun. My pleasure. I was struck by how much my conversation with Daniel wasn't just about the metrics and details of investing, and of course, there was plenty of that, but rather about human nature. Why is it that we can know the present is different from the past, yet cling to the past anyway? Why is it that we become victims of our own success? Why do we prefer narrative to numbers, or choose the numbers that we want to support the narrative that's most convenient? On a more practical level, I also came away from this conversation quite concerned. One impetus for the devastating 2008 global financial crisis was something called the shadow banking system, the buildup of debt in all these places that regulators didn't see and couldn't control. I didn't realize we were creating another shadow banking system with all the debt from private equity deals. I have a hard time believing this plays out well, not for our markets, but certainly not for the pension funds who are depending on private equity to bail them out. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Rosie Stouffer. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. Did you catch Season 3 of This is Digital? Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including digital lessons from the EV revolution and the chief digital officer's role in disruption and culture, featuring guests like Ekta Chopra of Elf Beauty and Tyson Jomini of J.D. Power. Do you have a digital mindset? Find out by checking out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here. A little while back, I became obsessed with stories that fell apart. Specifically, Hollywood projects that fell apart and why they did. So I started calling up everyone I knew in Hollywood and asked them, to pitch me their favorite idea, the one that broke their heart because it never got made. These stories were so good, and we decided to turn them into a series on revisionist history. We're calling it 
Development hell, the dreaded phrase that no one in Hollywood ever wants to hear, the one that describes purgatory, where once promising scripts go to die. There's going to be name-dropping, celebrity gossip, endless digressions, a story that was way too shocking for the studios, one that was told from the point of view of an exotic pet, and about the wild ride we went on trying to adapt my book, Blink. I can't wait to share it all with you. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can listen to all of Revisionist History ad-free by subscribing to Pushkin Plus.